Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and enacting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. All right, it's all yours, Doctor. Okay, awesome. Well, everyone, good to see you back. It is wonderful to be doing our third night on the fantastic Gospel of Matthew. And I want to pick up where we left off last night. Uh, we had just done that sketch. Uh, I hope uh, everybody did the drawing. Um, so thank you. Great. I'm so glad you participated. And uh, what we're going to do now is just go through and uh, look at uh, what is unique about the Gospel of Matthew. We've mentioned several things already, but we're going to do it a little bit systematically at this point, let's look at some unique stories that we're probably familiar with, but don't realize only come Matthew. So the genealogy of our Lord in Matthew chapter 1 is unique to Matthew. Luke has a genealogy, but as we discussed, it's uh, really through the line of the Blessed Mother. This is St. Joseph's line. We also get the birth of Jesus from St. Joseph's perspective in Matthew 1 through the Blessed Mother's perspective in Luke. Uh, this would make sense, again, if Matthew is the nephew of St. Joseph. Only Matthew tells us Epiphany and the visit of the Magi. We would not even have that feast if it was not for this gospel. Likewise, the flight into Egypt and the return. And then in the middle of Matthew's gospel, we get four narratives about Peter. Peter is really important to Matthew. Why? Because Matthew understands that the church is the kingdom, and you have to have some officers in the kingdom, and Peter is the royal steward. He's the number two guy right after the king himself. Matthew pays special attention to him. We have Peter walking on the water, Peter getting the keys to the kingdom, Peter in the temple tax where they catch that fish, you know, and it's got the coin in its mouth, and then Peter asking about how many times should I forgive? Well, especially Matthew 16, 7 through 19 is so important for us as Catholics. Stress Peter's authority. Jesus gives him the keys of the kingdom. In the old kingdom were given to the royal steward. 
the number two person in the kingdom. So that makes Peter number two. And then also Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing were Jewish terms in the first century for the authority to interpret God's law for God's people. And to bind something meant to forbid it on the basis of God's law. And to loose something meant to permit it on the basis of God's law. So what this does is make the, um, the primary interpreter of God's law for God's people. And you can see how important that is uh, for us as Catholics. And that ties in with our understanding of papal infallibility and the role of the successor of Peter as the primary teacher, clarifier of the faith. So uh, again, four episodes of Peter in the middle of Matthew that are unique to his gospel. And then some short episodes as we get near the end of the gospel, especially in Matthew 27, the death of Judas, Pilate washing his hands. is a, a little mini resurrection of the saints um, on the part of uh, the people in Jerusalem uh, associated with Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, the guard at the tomb, uh, which is mentioned twice when they set the guard, when the guard comes back to report as mysteriously gone missing. All right, so those are some unique narratives in Matthew. Let's now look at some unique teachings in Matthew. And uh, look at these. Uh, the first three of, really four of these teachings come from the Sermon on the Mount, this unique section of Matthew. Only Matthew records Jesus saying, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to correct the interpretation of Moses, and indeed, in some places, even the law of Moses six times. We call these the six antitheses. These are the passages where we remember we hear uh, Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And six times Jesus quotes either the common interpretation of Moses, or sometimes Moses himself, and then corrects it. And when Moses corrects Moses, excuse me, when Jesus corrects Moses, that implies that Jesus is God. Because in Jewish understanding, there's nobody above Moses save God himself. If you look at Moses up on Mount Sinai, above Moses, there's a cloud, and that cloud is the divine presence. So Jesus is saying, hey, I am the divine presence. I have the authority to correct Moses. And then uh, the practices of piety with which we begin Lent on uh, Ash Wednesday. Father was talking about that before we started this. And don't cast your pearls before swing a little verse there in uh, chapter 7, only found in Matthew. A couple other things in Matthew that are unique teachings. In Matthew, Jesus sends the 12 first out only to Israel. And then a chapter later, he has this famous statement, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give, rest, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and uh, merciful of heart. So that is unique to Matthew at the end of chapter 11. It's a reference actually to the heavy yoke of Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12, uh, but we can't go into that. We're talking about uh, fraternal correction in Matthew chapter 18. And then the section in Matthew 23 about call no man on earth father uh, or teacher, etc. 
that is found only in uh, Matthew, in Matthew 23. Uh, it's followed by a denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, several woes that, that uh, Jesus lays on the Pharisees, only found in Matthew. And then finally, the Great Commission. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew is unique to him. Okay, so those are some unique teachings, and let's follow up finally with some unique parables. So the first four of these unique parables in Matthew are all found in the mystery sermon in Matthew 13. They're all about uh, the kingdom, but we talked last night about that being indeed the church. And so the weeds and the wheat, treasure hidden in a field, pearl of great price, the net with the good and bad fish. Then there's another unique parable that's uh, found in the mercy sermon in chapter 18. That's the unforgiving servant. And then in the last section of Matthew, uh, the laborers in the vineyard, where they all labor at different times, some for the whole day, some for just an hour, but they all get the same payment. That's in Matthew 20, 1 through 16, only in Matthew. A very short parable about two sons, one who says he'll be obedient, but doesn't, and the other who says he'll obey, uh, or does not say he'll obey, but does, uh, that's in Matthew 21, 28 through 32. And then Matthew 25 uh, rounds out uh, the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew with three parables that are either entirely or mostly unique to this Gospel. The wise and the foolish virgins who meet the Lord at his second coming, the parable of the talents, the five, the two, and the one, the servant who buried the talent, uh, etc. And then famously, the sheep and the goats, which is our usual gospel for the feast of Christ the King at the end of the liturgical year. Well, that's, that's that overview, um, brothers and sisters. And we said that Today, uh, we were going to look at Matthew the year. So the way that these first three days of our uh, Lenten retreat together have broken down are Matthew the man uh, on Monday night, Matthew the book on Tuesday, it's Wednesday night now, talking about Matthew the year. And by that, I mean year A of uh, the church's lectionary readings, now that we use the three-year cycle given to us by the Second Vatican Council. And so what I'd like to do is take a look with you at how the Gospel of Matthew lies across the calendar year of year A, taking, of course, uh, the current year, uh, year 2023, as an example. Now, this is a, a Word document that I created that we can post for everybody to have. I think it's kind of useful and uh, and nice because it kind of shows us the the uh, Gospels that are coming up as we move through the year. Now, we're already kind of advanced. We're about a third of the way through the year into this purple area, which is, of course, Lent. And what have we done already? Well, back in Advent, we started with actually the end of Matthew, talking about the second coming, because we all know um, that um, the first week of Advent focuses on Christ's second coming, then the second and third weeks of Advent are the appearance of John the Baptist and then the exit of John the Baptist from the Gospel of the Year. That was from Matthew 3 and Matthew 11 this year. And then we get in the fourth Sunday of Advent, 
the uh, the stories just prior to the birth of Jesus. And in this year, working with Matthew, we get Joseph's dream uh, where he's told to go ahead and marry the Blessed Virgin in Matthew 1, 18 through 24. That's on the fourth Sunday of Advent. We move into Christmas time and we get a lot of Luke throughout Christmas, but there's a few instances in Christmas where we get Matthew. The Matthew Matthew's genealogy is at the Vigil Mass of Christmas. The flight into Egypt and the return is read on Holy Family. Obviously, the Magi is always the reading for Epiphany. And then since it's year A, on the Feast of the Baptism, we read from Matthew's account of the Baptism of the Lord. Then uh, the second uh, Sunday of um, Ordinary Time always reads from... Uh, uh, the second half of John 1 or the wedding at Cana. Um, it, those are the events that kind of are in the, uh, you know, right after the baptism of our Lord in the Gospel of John. So we take an excursus into John there. Um, that was John 1, 29 through 34 this year. And then the third Sunday of the liturgical year is very important because uh, the third Sunday of ordinary time is the Sunday of the year where we begin the sequential reading of the gospel of that year. And it's usually the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, in this year's gospel. In this case, it's Matthew. So we read the initial preaching of our Lord in his Galilean ministry on the third Sunday. Now, Pope Francis has established that third Sunday of ordinary time as the Sunday of the Word of God. And he asked the universal church to celebrate that Sunday in a special way using ceremonies and rituals that would focus on the Word of God, to do things like give away a Bible to every family in the congregation, um, you know, hang up Bibles decoratively, um, maybe have public readings of Scripture, uh, hand out uh, devotionals on Scripture, uh, you know, things of this nature, do something to really celebrate that third Sunday in order time as the Sunday of the Word of God. And uh, that's something that I think is that we can really get behind Pope Francis on. That's a really positive initiative that he initiated there. And I think we should, you know, uh, uh, own that and embrace that and try to live into that. All right. So where do we go after that? Well, we had a few Sundays before Lent started, right? In uh the end of January and, uh, you know, most of February. So what does the church do? She jumps us into the Sermon in the Mount, because that's where the, all that unique material in Matthew is. So we read the Beatitudes. We talked about salt and light of the world. Uh, we we ran through the antitheses, you know, where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and we got through those. And then, boom, there's Lent, and that's where we are. So fasting, prayer, and almsgiving on Ash Wednesday, we had the temptation last week. The transfiguration is coming up this Sunday. Then we shift to John for the rest of Lent, and then we come back to Matthew for Passion Week uh, and for Easter, and then through Easter, we're in John. Easter's dominated by John, and we don't get to back to Matthew until after Corpus Christi, and then we're going to be all the way in late June, by the time we get to Matthew, again, in this liturgical year. And then we begin uh, reading uh, on the 
11th Sunday of Ordinary Time, which is going to fall on June 18th, um, from uh, this uh, uh, second section of Matthew, Matthew chapters 8 through 10. And we get a couple of readings out of uh, chapter 10, which is the mission sermon. And then we move into the second, the, the third book of the new Moses, you know, Matthew 11 through 13. And the church reads one passage from Matthew 11, and it's the passage that's unique. Come to me and I will give you rest. And then we're into these parables of the kingdom. And we get three Sundays in a row in July where we work through these parables. And that's because the church knows these parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 are so important for Catholics so that we don't become disappointed or disillusioned with the church because it can be, you know, because the church can be weak, because the church can be contemptible, because the church can have sinners mixed into it and have scandals and so on. So the church really emphasizes this and gets a, gives us three Sundays, most of a month, exposed to these parables to think through and realize that Jesus said it was going to be like this. You know, remember that famous song from the 60s? Mama said that there would be days like this, days like this, Mama said. Okay, well, Jesus told us there'd be churches like this, churches like this, Jesus said. Okay, so we're warned in advance about that. And uh, then, you know, after those Sundays in July, we continue reading on, and ultimately we end up in uh, Matthew 25 in November, and we round out the liturgical year with those powerful uh, parables of the wise and foolish virgins and the um, uh, talents and the sheep and the goats. Okay, so that's how it lies across the liturgical year, and I hope you'll uh, take advantage of uh, downloading that document off the ICC website and and printing that out so you can maybe hang it on your fridge or something like that and look. It's like, you know, we're reading through Matthew. This is what we're going to encounter as we go through the liturgical year. Um, you see that most of the reading of Matthew actually comes in the second half of the year. It's from June on that we kind of get intense you know, after um, after the Easter uh, season, you know, wraps up, we go back and we do the heavy reading from Matthew 9 through Matthew 25. So having taken a look at that, I want to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at some key passages of Matthew that are very interesting, that get us into the mind of St. Matthew, and that also are read on significant occasions of the liturgical year. So, uh, Annie, if we could pop up King of the Jews, King of the World here. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's read on Christmas Eve. It's the uh, the reading for the early vigil of uh, Christmas Eve, which, I don't know, in my area is the Christmas service that most people go to because most people don't want to stay up late. Uh, and uh, and they also want to start Christmas as soon as possible, so they choose the first mass of the offerings, and uh, you know go to the 4 p.m. vigil on Christmas Eve. So for better or for worse, most people, at least where I live, hear this uh, gospel proclaimed. And uh, I always pity the poor deacon who's assigned to read this and has to slog his way through all these Hebrew names. I have been through some really cringy Christmas Eves 
with folks struggling with Zerubbabel and Shieltiel and everything that you've got in here. But, um, you know, uh, I studied Hebrew, so I'm not going to show off, but uh, I can zip through these things pretty fast. But it took years and years of training. Let's look at this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, that first verse is a masterpiece. In one verse, Matthew connects Jesus to three great mediators of the Old Covenant. First of all, we have that line, the book of the genealogy of. We maybe don't realize it as English readers, but that line occurs only one other place in the entire Bible, and that's in Genesis 5. And the full statement is, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And so any good Jew knows that. And so they pick up Matthew and read the book of the genealogy of, and they're waiting for Adam to drop, but Jesus drops. What's the significance? Clear as day. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the one to restore us to Eden, to bring us back to the garden where we can drink from the water of life and eat from the tree of life once more. And of course, that's baptism and Eucharist ultimately. But so book of genealogy of Jesus Christ that connects him to Adam. Then the son of David used as a title. Little known fact, there's lots of sons of David running around in Israel. We talked about that. Nazareth and Bethlehem are full of descendants of David, but Jesus is the heir. Likewise, the son of Abraham. Okay, all the Jews were sons of Abraham. No big whoop about that. But Jesus is the son of Abraham. And that's key because, brothers and sisters, there are three seeds in the Old Testament about whom promises are made. There is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, who's going to crush the serpent's head. There is the seed of Abraham in Genesis 22.18, who's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And there's the seed of David in 2 Samuel 7.14, who's going to be raised up and then is going to rule over all the nations forever. Okay? And in this one verse, Jesus, uh, Matthew is showing us, well, really this full chapter, he's showing us Jesus is all the seeds. Son of David, son of Abraham is saying he's the seed of David, the one who's going to be raised up, rule over all the nations. He's the seed of Abraham, the one who's going to bring blessings to all the nations. That's Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. And uh, at the end of the genealogy, we find out that he's the seed of the woman because in his generation, no seed of a man was involved at all. He was born of a virgin. So that statement, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 is already a mystical prophecy of the virginal conception and birth of our Lord, looking forward to a savior figure who is only going to come from a woman. And Matthew is pointing out, this is the one. He's all three seeds. And then we go through this genealogy and look at some of the interesting things that are said here. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What's she doing in this genealogy? Perez and fa the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Whoa, why? Not only, but Rahab too? And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. That's a little bit provocative. 
Ruth was a Moabitess. And then Obed, the father, Jesse, Jesse, the father, David, the king. And, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Ooh, painful. Okay, so let's notice. Four women are mentioned in this genealogy. And you only rarely mentioned women in genealogies in the ancient world. And if you did, it was usually because they were national heroines or queens or something like this. So if we were to have any women in this genealogy, we would think maybe Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah. Those would be the ones that we would think would be included. None of them are included. Who are included? Well, Tamar. Who's Tamar? Tamar was the Canaanite daughter of a nobody that Judah, the patriarch, uh, acquired as a wife for his eldest son. He married her to his eldest son. His eldest son was a rascal, and God struck him down. He married her to his second son. His second son was a rascal. God struck him down. He only had one son left. He didn't know that God was striking them down. He thought that Tamar was putting something in their meatloaf on Thursday nights, so he wouldn't marry Tamar to Shelah, his last son. So she went back to the home of her father, but she was kind of frustrated being a widow at such a young age. So she put on her little black dress and her pump heels and walked along the side of the road where she knew that Judah was going to come by. He comes by, likes what he sees, goes into her tent. She conceives twin boys by her father-in-law. She's a Canaanitess. Okay. And these two boys that she conceives by her father-in-law produce 90% of Judah's descendants like the vast majority, including the royal house, all come from these twin boys from this Canaanite daughter-in-law conceived illicitly when Judah thought she was a prostitute. Okay, like, ah, that's so wrong at every level. You know, there's so many things wrong with that. It's not even like you can't even begin, you know. So that's Genesis 38 is where that's, recounted. It's like one of the most shameful incidents in, in, in history. And then who else is mentioned here? Rahab. Rahab was a madam in Jericho who ran her own establishment into which the spies fled, you know, and she swung that deal with them. And then later she did pretty well for herself. She marries into the tribe of Judah. And then Obed was the, uh, sorry, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, a, a daughter of a people who were uh, sworn to be excluded from the kingdom of Israel for 10 generations. Uh, they were so considered so wicked. And, um, you know, the whole story of Ruth, she's per uh, personally fairly virtuous, but there is a sketchy scene in Ruth where she puts on her best dress and her pump heels and goes down to the threshing floor where she knows Boaz is going to be there. And she snuggles up to Boaz when he's half drunk and going to sleep. And he wakes up at midnight and she says, throw your cloak over me for you are next to Clint. And I'm not going to explain what that all means in ancient culture, but I'm sure we're all adults here and you can understand what's going on. And her conniving mother-in-law put her up to that because she could see that there were sparks going between Ruth and Boaz, and she was trying to reel Boaz in in the most aggressive way possible. But Boaz is such a good guy. It's like my big fat Greek wedding. He doesn't do anything wrong. He's like, no, 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 we're not going to do this right here and right now. We're going to do this the right way. Leave here before anybody sees you, and I'm going to you know, go through the proper marriage procedures in the morning, and he does, and everything's fine and dandy, and nothing bad happens, and it's all a PG movie. But that was that was Ruth. Okay. 
So then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Oh, ouch, 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 ouch. He doesn't even call her Bathsheba. You know, the wife of Uriah. This pulls up 2 Samuel 11 and the most shameful incident in the history of the royalty. So what is Matthew doing in this genealogy? Okay, he includes four women, all of whom are either Gentiles or connected to Gentiles, all of whom have sketchy romantic histories at best, okay? So what is Matthew doing? Matthew is preparing us to receive a Messiah who's going to be criticized by his contemporaries for what? For hanging around with who? Remember what the statement was always? Tax collectors and prostitutes, right? And so what's Matthew doing at the beginning of his gospel? He's like, what, what was wrong with tax collectors? They were working with the Gentiles. And prostitutes kind of pretty obvious what's wrong with them. And so if you're going to criticize the Messiah for hanging around with prostitutes and tax collectors, look at your own genealogy, O people of Judah. All you Jews, look where you came from. All of you are the, are the sons and daughters of Tamar, the Canaanitess daughter-in-law who seduced your ancestor Judah, Okay. So you're all half Canaanites. So it, these are councils of humility for those who are proud of their ethnic background and to cast aspersions on the uh, heritage uh, of our Lord. And there's yeah so many other things going on. And then the virginal conception and birth of our Lord is really in contrast with all the sketchiness that went on in the actual historical royal house of David. Look at all this mess in the genealogy, and uh, and then look at the purity of the Holy Family and the conception of the Blessed Mother. Just a, such a stark contrast. Really, after reading the genealogy, you get to the end, you're like, huh, maybe it would be best not to be related to these people, okay? And then you find out the end, well, thanks be to God, he's conceived virtually, so he's not actually related to, you know, this line. He just inherits the throne. You know, so there's a lot of complex things. It's very, very interesting. But again, preparing us to receive a, a Messiah who reaches out to sinners, who reaches out, God forbid, to the Gentiles. But we see that he's truly the son of his father because his father has been reaching out to prostitutes and Gentiles since the beginning of time. And they've even been incorporated into the royal house, okay? So a lot of stuff, a lot of food for thought there from the genealogy. Let's uh, move on and briefly look at the uh, Great Commission at the end of Matthew. We've looked at this before. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's universal kingship. Going back to Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall smash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the end of Psalm 2. All that's been fulfilled for Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Disciples means students, okay? And in, in Judaism, students followed their teachers. Teachers were called rabbis. Students were called disciples. But students followed their teachers. And students would follow the teachers around everywhere and imitate everything about them. So the Talmud which is this huge encyclopedia of Jewish lore that comes from the 600s AD. 
the Talmud, which is the basic text, the basic huge text that rabbis study to become rabbis, it's full of hilarious stories about the crazy extent to which different disciples would go to imit imitating their rabbis. You know, so there's funny stories in the Talmud about the rabbi going to the outhouse and finding that one of his disciples is hidden under the floor, you know, and uh, the rabbi goes home and he goes into his bedroom and there's a disciple under his bed, you know, this kind of thing and, and, and discovering them and, and asking the question, well, why? And well, well, master, you know, teacher, I need to learn everything about you. And uh, these stories are humorous and they're sometimes a little bit ribald, but they drive home the point of wanting to imitate the master in everything. And that has to uh, be true of us. It's like St. Paul says, we're conformed to Christ, you know? And so we should want to eat like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, use a fork like Jesus, you know, wash the dishes like Jesus, you know? You know, all this, we want to incarnate him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Imitate the master in every way. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that great Trinitarian formula teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We talked about the importance of observe uh, in a previous evening. And then behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. We read that on Ascension Day, okay, near the middle of the year. What a wonderful text at the middle of the year to kind of draw our thoughts to what's really important and uh, what we are, what our mission is on this planet. It's to spread the kingdom of this cosmic king, Jesus. All right. Well, uh, quite a bit later in the liturgical year in September, we're going to get this, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of August, we're going to get this reading from uh, Matthew 16, 17 through 19. And I want to talk about this with you guys because it's so important for us as uh, Catholics. Um, so this is, of course, after Jesus, you know, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say this and some say that. And then Jesus puts the question to them and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who normally doesn't have the answer, right? Peter's kind of a C student. He kind of sits in the back of class and scribbles on notepads and stuff like that. John sits at the front of the class and John raises his hand for every question that Jesus asks because John always has the answer, you know, John's the bright student, all of that. But but this time Peter's like, I know, I know, I know, I know who you are. Call on me, call on me. So Jesus says, okay, Peter, do you know who I am? He says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And Peter's like, yeah, I got one right. And he's giving high fives to James. He's giving high fives to John. I got one right. I answered one right this time, you know. And then Jesus is so happy that Peter's gotten the right answer that he's he attributes it to divine revelation. Like you got you got something right, Peter. I can't believe it. It must be revelation of the Father. Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's a miracle. <laughs> he got he got it right. And I tell you, you are Peter. We would say Rocky. Okay, and on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Okay, I got about five minutes left with, with y'all before we go to Q&A tonight, uh, brothers and sisters. And I want to do something a little bit uh, 
more academic with you because this verse is attacked by scholars. And so I want to do a little apologetics with you, okay? One thing that gets attacked about verse 18 is that Protestants in particular will say, hey, look, um, the name Peter in Greek is Petros, and yet the word rock in Greek, uh, sorry, what did I say there? The, the name Peter in Greek is Petros, but the name, or the word rock in Greek is Petra, and they've got different gendered endings. And so Protestants have said, look, Peter can't be the rock because his name is masculine and the word rock is feminine. And so Peter might be like a little stone or something, but the real rock that Jesus is going to build the church is something else like Peter's confession or Peter's faith or something like this. And I, you know, even when I was a Protestant, brothers and sisters, I didn't buy this argument. I thought that is a bunch of hooey. The gendered ending of Petros versus the Greek word for rock, Petra, is meaningless. It's just because the word for rock in Greek is feminine. And so if you're going to use it as a man's name, you've got to put a masculine ending on it. That's all that's going on here. Uh, but Peter is the rock. Furthermore, Jesus's original language was Aramaic. And in Aramaic, Peter's name as rock, or the, the word rock, is kepha. And you can see that in the New Testament as well, because remember, there's four places where Peter is referred to as, we usually say Cephas, but it's really kephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock. And that word kepha uh, is what we say, is what we call indeclinable. The, you can't put endings on it at all. And, and that's what, it, so what Jesus would have said in his spoken language is, you are kepha, and on this kepha, I will build my church. No ambiguity in the spoken language. It's only when it's translated into Greek that we get this problem that the word, the noun for rock is feminine. And so we got to put a masculine ending on it when it refers to Peter. Furthermore, the, the use of the term church, um, the ch word church only occurs twice in the Gospels, and they're both in Matthew and it's in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And a lot of German scholars in particular have said, oh, that looks fakey. Jesus didn't want to build a church or something like that. So this must be a later text written by uh, the early Christians and then, you know, written back or retrojected into an account of the historical life of Jesus. But he didn't historically say this. And what undermines that argument is the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls show that the term church was alive and well in Judaism up to 100 years before the birth of our Lord. The Hebrew word for church, which is kahal, occurs uh, dozens of times in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's a term for the uh, religious community. It's a term for uh, a religious community that has separated from the majority of the people and joined together for a life of communal prayer, okay? So the Essene community, some of you have read, read my book, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were left to us by the Essenes who were a, a branch of Judaism in the first century. They referred to their movement as a church, as a kahal in Greek, an ecclesia. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my kahal, my church, my community of prayer is going to be built on Peter. And um, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Gates are defensive structures. So the image is that this church, this community of prayer is going to attack Hades and Hades is going to be defeated. And then whatever you, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's the mark of the royal steward, the number two. And then whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. This is huge. It's very clear what this means. I am shocked that my Protestant seminary never taught us what this meant. Although, on the other hand, I'm not shocked that my Protestant seminary never taught us what this meant. But it's not hard to figure out. And we got plenty of contemporary sources. This term binding and loosing occurs in Josephus, the major Jewish historian who was a contemporary of St. Paul. And so we know what binding and loosing means. Binding and loosing were terms in ancient Judaism referring to the authority to interpret God's word for God's people. So God's word always needs interpretation in light of new circumstances that arise. And in the Old Testament, it was the Levitical priests who could bind and loose and interpret the word of God for the community. Jesus is saying, Peter, and we would say, by extension, his successors, is going to be the one who's going to bind and loose for my kahal, my community of prayer, interpret God's law for them authoritatively. And in so doing, he's going to be backed up by heaven. And of course, that implies uh, the infallibility of Peter's successor, or what we would call papal infallibility. So um, that is this very important passage, full of royal themes, very, very Jewish very, very first century. Some of this vocabulary we can compare favorably with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written during the ministry of our Lord. So this is no late, you know, you know, early Christian thing from the third century that's written back into the gospel. This is the authentic words of Jesus from the first century. Okay, we got to wrap up my presentation at this point. So we'll close off there. And what I'd like to do at this point is throw it open for Q&A, and uh, I'll do my best to field whatever questions folks might have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bergsma, once again, for a wonderful evening diving into uh, Matthew the Year. So let's dive into the questions, Dr. Bergsma. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Um, let's start with... Brian, who asks, how would Matthew have known about the virgin birth and the Magi's dreams to not return to Herod? Yeah, he would have known those from the Holy Family. And, um, you know, if the Eastern tradition is correct and that uh, St. Matthew was brother of St. James, son of Cleophas, also known as Alpheus, who was the brother of St. Joseph, then St. Joseph would have been his uncle. And, uh, you know, would have grown up uh, in Nazareth uh, with the Lord and, uh, you know, had access to that information from uh, St. Joseph himself and uh, the Holy Family generally. Uh, Sister Mary Teresita asks um, about the genealogy and the three sets of 14, but she says there aren't 14 in the third set. So what is that all about? Yeah. 
there's a whole bunch of ink spilled on, you know, how do you count those um, uh, sets of 14? Uh, sister, uh, there was a scholarly article just like one or two years ago in what's called the Journal of Biblical Literature that had a suggestion for how you count them to come up with 14. So if you want to shoot me an email, I'll send that to you. But the point of the 14 is easy enough to understand. That's the numerical value of David's name. So the Jews used letters to represent numbers, and they loved to play with numbers and letters. Uh, it was called gematria, uh, kind of like number letter wordplay. And uh, if you add up the value of David's uh, letters, uh, David is spelt in Hebrew D-V-D, okay, D-V-D. They don't have vowels. So D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. V is the sixth letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. So four plus six plus four is 14. So the, the point of the 14, 14, 14 is to stress Jesus's legal tie to the Davidic dynasty. It's like David cubed, okay? David, David, David. He inherits the covenant of David, the promises of David, the throne of David. It all comes through St. Joseph, the head of the Davidic uh, family. Uh, Michael, here on screen with us. Go ahead, take yourself off the mute with your question. Hi, thank you, Dr. Bergsma, for, for doing this. I'm, we're really enjoying the the, the speaking. Um, uh, so uh, the question is pertaining to like um, Matthew's relationship to Jesus and the and the kind of like the how detailed his account is. Um, in the the series, The Chosen, which I think you've said you've actually seen, um, uh, he it shows him taking notes um, as they go along and knowing his background, I think that seems likely. Um, Father Casey, uh, who's a YouTuber that I, I like a lot, says he thinks it's unlikely that they were taking notes directly, but do you think it, given who Matthew was and the type of person that he was, that he likely would have been taking notes as things went along? Yeah, uh, note-taking was known in the Greco-Roman world. Um, uh, you know, they had, they had forms of shorthand and um, they had folks that would take down speeches given by uh, public figures. Um, so it's plausible. Um, I would even say, you know, if if our Lord's ministry was three years in duration, as uh, is suggested by the Gospel of John, then during that time, at some point, the disciples would have gotten the idea, you know, maybe we should jot some of this stuff down uh, to help to commit it to memory. So I think that it's plausible that there were note takers among the apostles, and of all of them, Matthew was the most suited to do that, uh, since uh, he wasn't a, a blue collar worker, so to speak. He was, you know, a trained scribe. Um, so I, I think that you know, obviously, it's it's poetic license and how they interpret this on the chosen, but I think that they're being you know historically responsible in you know suggesting that. Doc, Matt asks, um, I've heard interpretations of bind and loose as Jesus giving the church authority over the forgiveness of sins. Can you speak to that? It is related. It is related. Um, if you look at the way binding and loosing uh, is used in first century Judaism, the, the primary sense is uh, either forbidding or permitting things based on the interpretation of God's law. So the way it usually went was, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? And you would go to the priest and the priest would interpret the law and say, 
well, this falls into that category, so it's permissible. This falls into the other category, it's forbidden. That's how this usually went. But by extension, it also was uh, related to the forgiveness or the retention of sins because this power to interpret uh, went along with um, the, the power to decide whether something was a serious sin or just a mild sin. And so it, it went along with um, deciding what you need to what you needed to do to make penance for your sins. So actually there was, I think this is very important, okay? In Luke 5, I'm sorry, Leviticus 5, brothers and sisters, we see that when you committed a serious sin in the Old Testament, you had to go and confess your sin and offer the proper sacrifice. Now, we don't get the full impact because Leviticus 5 is not explicit about to whom you have to confess. But if you look at the logic of the passage and remember that Leviticus is a is kind of a manual that Moses wrote down for the priests, you realize that when it says the man needs to confess, he's got to confess to the priest because the priest is the one who knows the law. And you know, most people were illiterate, but the priests were literate and they knew the law and they were the ones who were able to teach what you had to do to get your sins forgiven and also interpret the gravity of sins. So, you know, all of it's wrapped up, you know, binding and loosing is, is, is wrapped up with this priestly authority to assess how serious people's sins are. And then to assign either you need to offer a bowl or no, that's just a, a fairly light thing. You know, so if you've stolen a car, you got to offer a bowl. If you stole grapes from the supermarket, you know, a turtle pigeon will probably do for that, uh, or turtle duff, excuse me. Uh, so this kind of thing. And that was, but you see how priestly it is? I mean, in the Old Testament, it was the priests who bound and, and loosed. So it's a priestly prerogative or priestly responsibility that's given to Peter here. He's going to be the primary priest. And then a couple chapters later in chapter 18, he comes to Jesus and says, how often should I forgive? Well, Peter is going to be the chief forgiver in the whole church because he's, as it were, the first pope. And so he's going to be the highest authority on the forgiveness of sins and on the sacrament of reconciliation. And so especially for him, Jesus says not seven times, but 70 times seven. And that, by the way, brothers and sisters, is a reference to the Jubilee year because the Jubilee year was 49. Well, the Jubilee cycle was 49 years. Seven times 70 is 490 it's 10 jubilees, which is kind of like maximal jubilee, maximal forgiveness. That's what that's what Jesus is telling Peter in Matthew 18. Well, I kind of rambled on that, but uh, maybe we can go on to the next question. Well, no, I love that because um, there was a question that came in, you know, you're mentioning all of these Jewish things. Um, do Jewish scholars have any response or consideration on the Gospel of Matthew? Oh, absolutely. And if you read um, uh, Benedict uh, the Sixteenth's uh, first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, he talks quite a bit about a very famous American uh, rabbi, um, Jacob Neusner, who um, I didn't know him personally, although I knew some of his students. One of his students uh, was my professor at the University of Notre Dame uh, for Judaism. and uh, But he was 
world-renowned, very famous in American biblical scholarship because he published, I think, over a thousand books in his lifetime. He was just so prolific. He would pump out books, but very widely known. And in the first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Benedict XVI quotes Rabbi Neusner and very strategically because Pope Benedict in that first volume is trying to make the argument that, look, all of the Gospels, not just John, all of the Gospels present Jesus as divine. And uh, using arguments that I said, you know, like, look at how he corrects Moses, look at how he says he's greater than the temple. You know, I've mentioned uh, some of those things over our nights together. Well, Benedict points to that, but, you know, to protect himself because he's the Pope, you know, so people are going to say, well, you're just saying that because Jesus' divinity is Catholic orthodoxy, blah, 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 blah. What Benedict does is he quotes Rabbi Jacob Neusner, who has a very famous book called uh, A Rabbi Talks to Jesus. And it's it's Neusner's own reflections on reading the Gospels. And when Neusner reads through Matthew and, and comments on Matthew in his in his reflections, Rabbi Neusner points out all these places where Jesus does things that are reserved to God. Like within Judaism, only God would have the right to walk by and tell you to leave your father and come follow him. Remember how Jesus calls James and John and they leave their dad and run? Okay, that's breaking the command uh, to honor your father and your mother in, um, you know, the fourth commandment. That was only permitted in Judaism if there was a higher purpose, if you were being called on a special mission by God. And so that implies, again, you know, Jesus' divinity. So Neusner notices all these things, and ultimately Neusner says, that's why I can't accept Jesus. You know, his claims are just too big. But, you know, kind of Neusner is right for the wrong, or he's wrong for the right reasons, you know. He... He makes what we would say is the wrong choice ultimately, but he makes that wrong choice for the right reason because he does perceive accurately that Matthew and the other Gospels present Jesus as the divine Son of God. You just have to be a Jew to see it. Somewhat related, I suppose. Brian asks, "What is it? What is meant by I've come to fulfill the law? And is that going to be particularly significant to the Gospel of Matthew? Yes. Uh, what is meant by I've come to fulfill the law? You know, this means that, you know, there's different senses of fulfillment. Um, one sense of fulfillment is, you know, the, the idea of prophecy. So the law predicted certain things, and Jesus is going to actually perform those things that are predicted. Um, another sense of fulfillment is to fill up the meaning and we see this Jesus doing this in the famous six antitheses, where he says things like, you've heard that it was said, um, do not murder, uh, but I say to you, do not even hate your brother in your heart. And so that's a kind of fulfillment. Jesus fills that command against murder up to the full and shows us that its true meaning goes all the way to the heart all the way to eradicating the root of murder, which is hatred for our brother. So there's that sense of fulfillment. And then ultimately, Jesus uh, fulfills the law and the prophets in the sense that he completes them. He accomplishes 
everything that they were pointing forward to. And so after the passion, the resurrection, some parts of the law are, are done. They're finished because they've served their purpose. They pointed towards Christ's passion. Christ's passion is complete. And therefore, we don't need to, for example, offer animal sacrifices anymore or perform some of the other rituals because the whole purpose of those rituals was to point to what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. So, so those are three senses of fulfillment, and all of them are in play in Matthew's gospel for sure. Um, Cassie asks, looking at the the year A um, devoted to, to Matthew primarily, she asks, why are there two Sundays this liturgical year that use the same gospel reading of the Transfiguration? Yeah, that's interesting. So the Transfiguration comes, uh, first of all, on the feast day of the Transfiguration, but then it shows up later when we're reading through Matthew, okay? So that's the reason. It's for, in, in one instance, it occurs because that's the feast being observed, that's the commemoration, in another place, it uh, repeats because there we're just reading in sequence through uh, the the uh, the order of the chapters of Matthew. All right, and we're going to close with this one, Doctor Berksmuts. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy of a question, so so stick with me here. This is from John um, asking about a particular translation of Matthew's Gospel. He says, "In the New American Bible Revised Edition." A footnote to Matthew 16, 21 to 23. So that's right before um, what you were talking about, um, or right after, actually. And it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is right as uh, Peter is, you know, rebuking Jesus over this. And so this is what the footnote says, quote, neither this nor the two later passion predictions can be taken as sayings that as they stand, go back to Jesus himself. However, it is probable that he foresaw that his mission would entail suffering and perhaps death but was confident that he would ultimately be vindicated by God. End of footnote quote. Yeah. Is this really the position of the church on that matter? That's not the position of the church. That's not the position of the saints. Um, basically, you've got a Bible scholar who was assigned to write some notes for Matthew for the edition that's produced. And the, the Bible scholar in question, you know, has personal faith issues about uh, believing everything that the gospels say about Jesus. Um, and that, you know, the, the church though, like, um, and you know, it's not, it's not it's just my opinion. Okay. Um, it's what the church has officially taught in the Vatican documents. So let's, let's take Vatican two, for example. Okay. Verbum Domini article 11. It says, whatever the sacred authors assert, must be held as asserted by the Holy Spirit, okay? So you've got the sacred author, Matthew, asserting that Jesus clearly predicted how his passion would unfold prior to the occurrence of it. That's what the sacred author asserts, and we as the faithful need to 
consider that to be an assertion of the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, the Holy Spirit cannot lie or deceive or, or tell an untruth. So their Article 11 of Verbum Domini is teaching what we call inerrancy. It's the, the freedom of the scriptures from error because they are inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. Later, this question came up even after Verbum Domini was published, and there's a little document called Sancta Mater Ecclesia that was issued by Paul VI uh, a little bit after the council uh, that talks about the historicity of the Gospels. Uh, and it, it too says, um, uh, you know, the Gospels were composed over time and they went through stages of their composition. But despite all that, they still always teach us what Jesus really said and did while he lived and moved among us. Okay, so the, um, the church has always, you know, wholeheartedly uh, embraced uh, the truth of the Gospels. So I would, you know, those notes uh, can... They're not inspired. They're not magisterial teaching. They're just there as helps. Um, oftentimes, they're farmed out to different scholars who can be very busy and be working under a rush and stuff like that. And so we have to sometimes take them take them with a uh, with a grain of salt. All right. Well, we'll close it on that for tonight, Doctor Bergsma. Would you mind uh, closing us in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this uh, evening for this opportunity to spend time gathered around your word. We pray that this gospel uh, of Matthew may deeply touch us and be transformative uh, for our Lent as we embrace the, the, the forms of piety that Matthew records in Matthew chapter 6. And as we seek to uh, be obedient uh, to Jesus, uh, King of Israel and King of the world and King of our hearts. We ask this in his name and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.